Please turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. As you're turning, we have our World Missions Conference coming up uh, the latter part of this month. And I want to challenge you to prepare your heart for that and to do so by reading a missionary biography. We have a lot of these uh, in our bookstore or in our library. And uh, let me just suggest certain ones. Uh, you know, the fellow who led me to Christ when uh, the Air Force chaplain, after that, about every month, he'd get me and he'd walk me down to a Christian bookstore in Atlanta. And uh, he would say, you need to read this book. You need to read about uh, John and Betty Stam and uh, missionaries of China and how they were martyred by the communists there and what happened to their child. You need to read that story. Uh, it said, uh, you need to read uh, about William Carey, father of modern missions, tremendous missionary to Burma, and uh, what happened there as he went. Uh, we've got a new biography of that written by Timothy George, the head of the Beeson Divinity School at Samford. Excellent, excellent uh, account of the life of William Carey. Um, Every Christian ought to be familiar with William Carey and have read his biography. C.T. Studd, he'd say, you need to read about C.T. Studd, the famous cricket player, and, and uh, what he did with his money. And uh, how he became a pioneer missionary to Africa. Uh, you need to read uh, about Hudson Taylor. Everyone should read Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Uh, missionary to China, founded the China Inland Mission today called the OMF, Overseas Mission Fellowship. Tremendous man. Man decided he, he didn't want to go to the mission field until he learned to move men through God by prayer alone. Hudson Taylor. Uh, through Gates of Splendor, the biography of Jim Elliott. Betty Elliott is uh, widow, has been with us on a number of occasions. Jim Elliott martyred by the Alka Indians uh, in uh, Peru. Tremendous story. He and four others. Uh, outstanding, uh, stirring book. Read, read these. Now, uh, we've got those in the bookstore, the library, up at the missions office. If you can't find what you're looking for there, I've got a personal library. But get one. Now, I'm going to see you 29 and I'll just bump into you and I'll say, what are you reading? And you say, well, uh, and I say, you and I are going to take a little trip, <clears throat> and uh, uh, we're going to go back here to the library or the bookstore and get you something and, uh, and get your heart prepared. Let's prepare our hearts for our conference. Um, turn to uh, Joshua 7, and uh, we have been looking at the book of Joshua. They run a tremendous victory, their first battle in the issue there of Jericho. But now we have an amazing uh, reversal of that kind of success in this seventh chapter. Startling contrast. I received a uh, call from a pastor this week from out of town. Don't know who he was. I don't believe he was in our denomination. Didn't identify himself. I uh, just wanted someone to talk to. And said, I've kind of followed you and you've been a mentor. You don't know me. But he said... Uh, I'm crushed. And he accounted to me how a woman had come to see him in his office and uh, sort of called him at an unguarded moment and uh, told him she was in love with him. And he said, no, you're married, I'm married. Uh, and then uh, when she got ready to leave, she kissed him, and he kissed her back. 
and uh, he was just crushed that he had kissed her back. Uh, just uh, overwhelmed with his spiritual defeat. Well, you have here Israel in defeat. I think we pick up some lessons. How do you handle spiritual defeat? What do you do when you experience that? In verse 2 of chapter 7, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make on all the people that labor thither, for they are but few. So they went up thither, the people, about three thousand men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men, for they chased them from before the gate even to Shebarim, and smote them in the going down. Wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Here's this defeat. Now, remember what the land represents. From one standpoint, the land of Egypt biblically pictures heaven. And in that sense, if you're a Christian, you're out of Egypt and you're on your way to the promised land of heaven. But in another sense, it can picture for us what we have in Christ right now. And uh, the things that we're promised. And in that sense, we need to view the land as things we're promised, but that we need to appropriate, that we need to possess our possessions. We need to occupy the land. Uh, we're promised that sin shall not have dominion over you. But a lot of us experience sin having dominion over us. We're promised the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, faith, self-control. But we have to possess that. We have to walk in the Spirit to have the fruit of the Spirit. We're promised effective prayer, but we have to appropriate that. We're promised guidance. We have to appropriate that. Uh, we promise power to be witnesses. We have to appropriate that. We have to possess our possessions. Now, there was strong opposition to them occupying the land. There were high-walled cities and jobs in the land. There were seven nations mightier than they were. And there's strong enemies to you occupying the land, to you appropriating what's promised to you in Christ. Uh, there's the world. There's the flesh. There's the devil. And uh, they are very strong. The flesh, that part of you, your sinful nature, which you still have, although you have a new nature and have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, if you have come and really surrendered your will to Jesus Christ in true repentance, and if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as God the Son who died for you and rose from the dead, uh, you have a new nature, but you still have a sinful nature. And uh, it, it will trip you up. It's powerful. Uh, if the if the devil died tomorrow, you'd still have a tremendous fight to fight with the world in the flesh. Now, uh, maybe you're experiencing spiritual defeat, like that pastor was, and uh, like they're experiencing physical defeat here. Here's pictured a body of believers in defeat, or you could let it picture an individual in defeat, where he's temporarily overcome by the enemy. When 
God's people experience physical defeat or spiritual defeat, how should they respond? Notice what happens here. The reaction of Joshua and the elders in verse 6. Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord uh, until evening tide. He and the elders of Israel and put dust upon their heads. He, if, When God afflicts us, we ought to afflict ourselves. We ought to humble ourselves. And that's what he does. He, he humbles himself. And uh, then he blames God. In verse 7, Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would to God we'd been content to dwell on the other side of Jordan. Well, it's wrong to blame God, but it was right to trace their defeat back up to God. God had let this happen to them. When something happens to it, it doesn't happen by accident. God controls all events. Not a sparrow falls without your father. The hairs of your head are numbered. And so when something happens, uh, uh, God let it happen. And he, he's right about that. And he anticipates what the result of this is going to be. In verse 8, O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it, and shall environ us around and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? When God's people suffer spiritual defeat, the results can be horrible for them, not to mention for the cause of Christ. Now, uh, at this point, when they humble themselves, God reveals the problem. God tells them the reason that they suffered this defeat. Uh, there's a reason, I think, implied. You pick up the implied reason as you went along? Presumption. Our enemies are really weak. We don't have to worry too much about them. Just send two or three thousand men up there. They can handle that little city. Our enemies are not weak. Charles Simeon says, to confide in God, to trust God, was right. But to expect his aid when they neglected to use their own endeavors was highly presumptuous. If we conceive that our spiritual enemies are weak and neglect to use the proper means of grace, we shall fall. Exactly. That's a reason implied, presumption. But there's a reason indicated. God singles out the reason. Verse 11. Israel hath sinned, and they have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded thee. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and disassembled, and have put it even among their own stuff. He says, Israel sinned. Israel's taken of the accursed thing. What is what he's speaking of? When they took Jericho, Jericho was the first fruits of the spoils. And these first fruits were to be dedicated to God. And they were not to take them for themselves. They'd been told that. But God says they violated that. They've taken of the first fruits, the accursed thing, the thing that was to be dedicated to God. I sure am glad we haven't done that, aren't you? I'm so glad I haven't ever taken something that was God's and used it as if it was my own. His day, my time, my body, His money. Uh, used it as if it was my own. 
God says they sinned. That's why they were defeated. Verse 12, Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were cursed. Neither will I be with you any more, except you destroy the accursed thing from among you. The situation would continue until they dealt with it. Now, the astounding thing about this is Israel hadn't done this. One man in Israel did it. A man by the name of Achan did it. And the whole nation was held accountable and suffered as a result. Goodness gracious. Whew. God regarded them as a unit. Uh, Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, in his book on Joshua, entitled uh, Joshua and the Flow of Biblical History, says it like this. He says, uh, God blesses his people, and one thing can spoil the blessing, sin, either individual or corporate, when either life in the church or doctrine is not cared for, this stops the blessing as much as when an individual sins. Sin among the people of God either diminishes the blessing or brings the blessing to a halt until it is confessed, judged, and removed. Hmm. You read in the Corinthian letter of Paul, 1 Corinthians, where chapter 5, he talks about sin in that congregation. He says there's a case of, of sexual immorality in the congregation. And you must deal with it. God's going to withdraw his blessing if you don't deal with it. You're tolerating it, it says. He says, you must come together, you must act, you must discipline this individual. In that particular case, he called for excommunication. It says, uh, put him out of the church. It says, you must do this. Uh, you read over in the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches where... God says, uh, Christ says, because you're doing this, I'm going to come and re remove your candlestick if you don't deal with this. Uh, so here's uh, uh, the solemn thing that churches are accountable uh, for what happens in their midst. And if people are allowed to uh, just go against God's will and nothing's done about it, God withholds his blessing from the whole group. Hmm, goodness. Well, uh, but they don't know about it. They don't even know who's done it. They don't know what's been done. God reveals to them what they need to know. And what he does is he, he says, you bring the different tribes before me and then the different families and then the different people in the different families and I'll indicate who's guilty. You cast lots. So the tribes came and God by the casting of lots, singled out one of the tribes. Then the families, he singled out a family. And then the individual. In verse 18 of chapter 7, it says, And uh, Zabdi brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. As the lots are cast, the lot indicates Achan is the guilty party. And uh, Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the, God, the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him, and tell me now what thou hast done, and hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua, 
and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold of fifty shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are laid in the earth in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. And back in those days, uh, Babylon was the center of that cultural area. And if you uh, had a goodly Babylonian garment, man, you were you were in. And he saw that garment and that gold, and he coveted. He wanted it for himself and his family. And he took it and he hid it. Uh, you pick up here something about the nature of temptation, don't you? I saw, I coveted, I took. James in James chapter 1, 14, 15 says uh, that uh, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, his own desire, uh, and enticed. And sin, uh, it says, in desire when it is conceived, lust when it is conceived brings forth sin, and sin when it is finished brings forth death. Every man is in, in enticed when he's drawn away with his own lust. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away with his own lust and enticed. And uh, lust when it's conceived brings forth sin. Sin when it is finished brings forth death. Someone likened uh, temptation to a spider uh, weaving a spider web. He, he wants to weave a spider web across this path. And so he gets on a branch of a tree and he begins to let down a long uh, piece of, of uh, web here. He spins it and the wind blows it over and it strikes another branch on this side and attaches. And then he runs across uh, that thread and he uh, fastens it. And then he comes back, and then he comes back, and he strengthens this, and he builds his web. Well, Satan will cast a thought, an impure thought, into our mind, and he keeps it there. And if it finds lodgment, or it can come out of our sinful nature, it doesn't have to come from Satan, but if it finds lodgment, then it's strengthened. And uh, it says, lust, desire, when it's conceived, when it comes to birth, brings forth sin. Uh, it's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. It's not a sin to be tempted, but it's a sin to let the temptation lodge in me, to entertain the temptation. I saw, I coveted. He, he lets it fasten. That's what Achan did. And, uh, and then he took... Sin, when it is conceived, uh, or lust, when it is conceived, brings forth sin. Um, <clears throat> let me illustrate this with kind of a humorous illustration. A gentleman in our church writes me weekly his thoughts, and he wrote one about a time when he was tempted as a fifth grader in Germany. He was over there, and, and he says, One blow, blustery, cold fifth grade morning in Stuttgart, Germany, I found myself overwhelmingly curious and sorely tempted. I was standing in line in the hallway with my class as we waited to go outside for recess. We had dressed to the hilt, snow boots, ski pants, quilted jackets, thick mittens, caps with ear flaps tied down around our chins. All you could see of us was our little round faces peering out. 
I stood about ten kids back from the door, and right next to the radiator, one of those old-fashioned iron radiators with a black knob at one side that controlled the flow of scalding water through the pipes. Was it on, I wondered. I could feel nothing through my cocoon of puffy clothing. As I waited in that eternity through which all playground lines linger, my curiosity began to grow. Having just endured the lengthy ordeal of dressing for play in the snow, I wasn't about to remove even a mitten. But I had to know, was it hot or not? I leaned to the side and positioned my face close to the radiator. The wind was whipping through the door, and I couldn't tell. Uh, <clears throat> but now, having been so frustratingly denied the answer to my question, I could stand it no longer. I stuck out my tongue <laughs> and touched it. The sizzle could be heard from one end of the line to the other and my yelp to the end of the hall. My curiosity had bested me, and in my defeat I did indeed suffer the natural consequences of my temptation. Does that not happen to us and to those around us every day? And aren't the consequences of our temptation devastating at times? Consider the cracked addict who never thought that uh, <clears throat> smoking weed would eventually shatter his life. Or oh, the recently divorced executive who didn't realize that the fun he had with his secretary would destroy his family. Sometimes the choices are difficult, and sometimes the temptation is great. But we can never relinquish our responsibility to choose wisely and properly, because every, every choice has its consequence. Well, uh, got to learn to resist early and thoroughly. Think of how Christ resisted temptation. When the Satan tempted Christ, if you're the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. He immediately rejected it using his spiritual weapon of the Word of God. He said, No, for it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When he was tempted by Satan, and Satan quoted Scripture, Jump off the temple, for it is written that God would give his angels charge over you, and they would catch you up, lest you dashed your foot against the stone. Jesus said, No, again it is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He counters these blows of Satan with the Word of God as he uses his spiritual armor. Now, temptation always is attractive. It's always a golden wedge and a, a goodly Babylonian garment, something that really appeals to us. And you and I have a sinful nature that responds to stimuli. You think that you can uh, go to certain kind of movies and not have that spider web fastened on your soul? You think you can listen to certain music and not have it fastened on your soul and strengthened? Do you think you can uh, read certain things, run with certain people? No way. Bad companions, uh, Paul says, uh, really mess you up. How <clears throat> uh, the... You sow a thought, you reap an act. You sow an act, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a character. You sow a character, you reap a life. You sow a life, you reap a destiny. You know, the, the, the comforting thing about this is that God showed them, when they really wanted to know, God showed them what needed dealing with. That's encouraging. They suffered spiritual defeat, and they said, God, what's wrong? And God showed them because they really wanted to know.
And God will reveal to us what it is in our lives that we need to deal with is messing us up if we really want to know, if we're suffering spiritual defeat. Got a letter from a man uh, that uh, it's, a, it's a letter he wrote to the head of Ramada Inn. And this is on Christian Businessmen's Committee of USA letterhead. This man works for Christian Businessmen of America. He writes to the head of the Ramada Inns, Dear Mr. Belmonte, 1969, while attending the University of Alabama, three buddies and myself rented a room at your facility by the campus and stole a TV and two lamps. Um, I had never stolen, uh, been part of the stealing in my life up to that point, and nothing since. He says, why bother with this confession, this 23 years overdue? Let me explain. In September 1976, I became a Christian. And uh, over the years, I've asked God to bring to my conscience anything that was not right in my life, that was messing me up spiritually. And he says, uh, in the summer of 91, my family and I were vacating uh, from California and toured the University of Alabama campus with my girls. My heart was literally pounding that night as I recalled to myself the episode. I uh, thought of going over to the hotel, but instead I talked myself out of it. On a recent business trip to Birmingham, uh, the episode again surfaced in my mind, so I made a deal with God. I said, God, show me in some tangible manner, like me meeting the CEO of Ramadi Inn on the airplane. Show me some... some uh, in some tangible manner, you really want me to deal with this. Uh, and uh, it says, uh, God is not one to back off, I found. Over lunch with a friend and his pastor, both of whom were completely unaware of the episode, my friend's pastor recounted how God had dealt with him a particular past, about a particular past sin in his life. He'd stolen $25 from the treasure of fraternity many years before and uh, had to go back and make it straight. Well, I was the pastor. I had no idea that this fellow was wrestling with this. I don't know why I brought that story up when we had lunch together. But obviously, uh, it, uh, it hit him right in the heart. As I sat there, I could almost hear God saying, Is this not tangible enough? And you know the rest of the story. It says, I'm not waiting to meet you on my next flight. Thus this letter. I've already done everything to avoid writing this letter. Over the years, I've actually tried to soothe my conscience by staying at Ramada Inns on business trips <laughs> and scheduling group business meetings there when possible. But now I'm convinced God wants me to deal with this in a straightforward manner. I will gladly pay any restitution you deem necessary. Well, that's it. And God revealed it to him. That's precious. That's comforting. That's encouraging. If we really want God to show us things that he wants us to deal with, he will bring them out, and then we can deal with them. Uh, <clears throat> and it requires really dealing with them. It required the death here of Achan in uh, verse 24. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold, and his sons and daughters, and oxen, ass, sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and brought them into the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Well, the counterpart of that today 
would be church discipline, that, that the church must discipline those within its body that are doing wrong, and that, that the parties should understand this and should agree with this and, and uh, be responsive to this. But then also the counterpart would be self-discipline, like this man who wrote the letter disciplined himself to deal with this thing in his life. But it has to be dealt with um, if we're going to have God's blessing. There has to be true repentance, confession, forsaking. Uh, Whoso covers his sin shall not prosper, Proverbs says, but whoso confesses and forsakes his sin shall find mercy. Well, at this point, God removes his anger, and there's the renewal of the conflict, chapter 8, verse 1. God says to, the Lord said to Joshua, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee, and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into thy hand the king of Ai, and his people, and the city, and his land. Uh, and uh, verse 2, And thou shalt do to Ai and her king, as thou didst to Jericho and her king, only the spoil thereof, and the cattle thereof, shall you take for a prey unto yourselves and lay thee an ambush for the city behind it. God had withheld the spoil of Jericho. Now he gives them the spoil of this city. Achan had taken of the forbidden spoil, and he suffers terribly. Those who had refrained from taking of the forbidden spoil, now God blesses them with this spoil and further spoil and gives them the things that they need. He provides and he blesses C.S. Lewis says, If we consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Uh, <clears throat> Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. God offers spoil when we do it his way. What about it? Are you suffering spiritual defeat? Something in your life? Some of you here are. Have you humbled yourself? You know, that pastor who called me, he was just so defeated, and he was crushed. And he really, he felt like quitting the ministry. He was so defeated. He could have fallen a lot further, couldn't he? But he had fallen. A lot of times there's something in our lives that kind of have opened us up to something like that that needs dealing with. But when we do deal with it, we, we get up. And we, we go on in the race. And we're forgiven. And we're restored like they were. They now went out and fought the enemy. There's a poem, The Race. Quit. Give up. You're beaten. They shouted. They shouted at me and plead. There's just too much against you now. This time you can't succeed. And as I start to hang my head in front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of a race. And hope refills my weakened will as I recall that scene, for just the thought of that short race rejuvenates my being. A children's race, young boys, young men, how I remember well. Excitement, sure, but also fear. 
it wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up so full of hope, each thought to win the race, or tie for first, or if not that, at least take second place. And fathers watched from off the side, each cheering for his son. Each boy hoped to show his dad that he would be the one. The whistle blew, and off they went, young hearts and hopes of fire. To win, to be the hero there, was each young boy's desire. And one boy in particular, whose dad was in the crowd, was running near the lead and thought, my dad will be so proud. But as they speeded down the field across a shallow dip, the little boy who thought to win lost his step and slipped. Trying hard to catch himself, his hands flew out to brace, and mid the laughter of the crowd, he fell flat on his face. So down he fell, and with him hope, he couldn't win it now. Embarrassed, sad, he only wished to disappear somehow. But as he fell, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face, which to the boy so clearly said, Get up and win the race. He goes on to tell of his efforts to do that, and he falls several more times. No hope now of winning the race. And the winning runner goes across. They cheered the winning runner as he crossed the line first place, head high and proud and happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line last place, the crowd gave him the greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low, unproud, you would have thought he won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won. His father said, You rose each time you fell. And now when things seem dark and hard and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my own race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs and all, and all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Quit, give up, you're beaten. They still shout in my face, but another voice within me says, Get up and win the race. Maybe you've fallen, like that pastor. Maybe far, far, far further. Get up. Get up and win the race. God's prepared to forgive and to change and empower. And we're with you. We're pulling for you. Get up. All you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Some of you are not in the race. Some of you never have received Christ as Lord and Savior. Get in the race. Respond. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, something in your life you've allowed to fasten on your soul, a temptation that needs to be crucified, dealt with, put out? Have you fallen and feel so defeated, no sense in trying, life all apart? Get up. Ask forgiveness. Something that you need to go back and make straight like the man who wrote the letter. Write the letter. Go back. Make it straight. If you've never responded to the gospel, never gotten in the race, but you want to, pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I want to be in the race. I do trust you as my Savior. And I surrender you as my Master. Come into my life. Place me in the race. Amen.